Now, the problem with a lot of us is we have a distorted view of hope and it affects our perspective on suffering. We're only focusing on the suffering and not on the future hope. And we think we're going to be in labor forever. We think the suffering will never let up and never give way. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of Romans chapter 8, we've begun a look at suffering in the life of believers and non-believers. Sometimes we suffer as a result of our own sin, but other times it's because we're following Christ that we're being persecuted. As we pick up, Dr. Brugge notes that all people, Christians and non-Christians alike, experience suffering, but there is a type of persecution that is exclusive to Christians. Many times the bitter fruit we eat comes from the seeds we planted. The rotten water we drink comes from the very wells that we've dug. So Christians are not exempt from common suffering, and they're not exempt from carnal suffering that comes either from our own sin or from the sins of other people. But there's a third kind of suffering the Bible highlights, and it's what we call Christian suffering, and that's unique to us, and it's an expression of persecution. And so Peter will also say, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Again, speaking to God's people, he says, if you are reviled or insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And then he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, here it is, Christian suffering. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in this name. He's talking about suffering as a believer, what Jesus referred to in the gospels as bearing your own cross. Bearing your own cross has nothing to do with arthritis or a headache or a migraine or not even the man you're married to. Now, ladies, he may be cross, but that's not what the Bible means. Jesus is speaking of persecution, living for him. Blessed are you when men insult you, not if, but when they insult you. Why? Because all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus said it would happen, and it can take many forms. Sometimes it means you will be unpopular. You're a party animal, and you get saved, and now your friends don't understand why you don't want to go out and drink with them. Sometimes it means sacrifice, having to choose the straight and narrow. Sometimes there will be verbal abuse. Sometimes you'll be passed over a job for promotion. Not because you've done your work with anything less than excellence, but because you are a believer. Sometimes it will mean strife from your parents or your own family members because you know Christ and they do not. Sometimes it can mean even physical persecution. But please understand, if you are going to be a fellow heir with Christ, you're going to suffer with him. And again, 2 Corinthians 11 describes not just common suffering or carnal suffering, but also Christian suffering. Notice in verse 23, he speaks of imprisonments. He speaks about being beaten times without number. Notice verse 24, he testifies of having five times received from the Jews, 39 lashes. And verse 25, on three occasions, as, as having been beaten with rods, and another time as being stoned with rocks. 
In verse 26, he speaks not only of common dangers, but the dangers that can come from persecution. Now, turn back a few chapters to the left to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want you to see something in 2 Corinthians 4, what he said earlier in this passage, because I want you to see how the Apostle Paul viewed these three kinds of suffering, common, carnal, and Christian. 2 Corinthians 4, and look, if you will, in verse uh, 8. In verse 8, he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And I fear that many of us can be anger and bitter at God because we don't have the perspective that this great apostle had on suffering. Some of you this morning are deeply discouraged, maybe even depressed, because of what you're experiencing. You're thinking, God doesn't really care. Again, it's because you've been sold a bill of goods about suffering that the Bible does not teach. But notice Paul's perspective in this chapter as you drop down to verse 17. He says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison." While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul evaluated this life in light of the next. When I read verse 17, and I think, well, Paul, listen, you were beaten. You were stoned. You were lashed. You were pickled in the Mediterranean. You were scorned. You were run out of town. You were hated by your Jewish brothers. You were persecuted by your Gentiles. And after 35 years of it, you call it momentary light affliction. Now, most of us have never broken a fingernail for Jesus, much less experienced what Paul has known. But his perspective is eternal, and he saw that the sufferings of this age are greatly diminished when compared to what is out in front of us. And that's what our text is referring to. Now go back to Romans 8 and verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed within us. I consider, the King James says, I reckon. If you remember from chapter 6, it was a bookkeeping term, legizomai, that meant to put to one's account, to number something. Paul is tallying it all up. He's putting suffering on one side of the ledger, and on the other side, he's putting the future glory, and he says the two don't even compare. They don't even compare. We haven't seen anything yet. Now, that's a biblical axiom. That's the truth we need to get deep into our hearts because you are going to suffer. Now, beyond the actuality of suffering in this axiom for suffering, now in verses 19 to 22, he gives us an analogy of suffering. And being the good preacher that he is, he opens the window and lets some light in. He illustrates and he applies the topic of suffering to the realm of nature to teach us some eternal principles from it. In verses 19 to 22, if you study it carefully, you're going to discover three principles that we can learn from the suffering that creation knows and apply it to our life. Now, in this portion, he personifies creation like it were a person. And God often does that. He says, the trees clap their hands for joy. It's an anthropomorphism. Trees don't literally have hands, but God is illustrating how all of creation praises him. 
And now he begins to take creation, makes it like a person, to teach us something about suffering. Look first in verse 19. He says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing, the apocalypsis. We speak of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. What book is that? The Revelation. The word revelation is apocalypsis. We speak of the coming of the Lord Jesus when he is going to be revealed. Well, here he's speaking of the anxious longing of the creation that waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Let's ask some questions. First, who are the sons of God? Well, those of us who know Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become, because we weren't before, to become children of God, even, or those who believe in his name. And we've already studied this in verse 9 and in verse 14, that the sons of God are those who have exercised faith in the Lord Jesus. So notice here in verse 19 that Paul speaks of the anxious longing of creation. Those two words, anxious longing, is translating one word in the original that literally means to watch with outstretched head. You know, sometimes you're in a crowd and there's something in front of you and you want to see what's going on. And you, you get up there and you tiptoes and you stretch out your neck so you can see what's happening. It's a beautiful word picture that God is giving us of the creation. It's like the creation with outstretched head is looking and longing for what is out there in the future. The Phillips translation done in the 1950s in England, Phillips rendered the verse, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. Now, Scripture must interpret Scripture. And when we come down to verse 24, he is going to speak of the revealing of the sons of God, mentioned here in verse 19, as happening when Jesus comes back. Our salvation is not yet finished. We have been justified in the past, declared righteous. We are being sanctified in the future, made like Christ. But in the future, we're going to be glorified when we get a body like Christ and our salvation is completed. Paul said to the Philippians that we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his own glory. And so verse 19 describes creation as with outstretched neck looking for what God really has in the future for his people. His point is, is that the whole creation groans and suffers like a woman in labor, but it's groaning and suffering with a future perspective of what is yet to come. Now, there are aspects of childbirth that as men we only witness that are ugly, that are painful, but it's filled with anticipation of the baby that is going to come. Well, the creation the Bible describes here is in the pains of childbirth. And as you know, when a woman delivers, those pains increase with frequency and intensity. And so it will be, the Bible teaches as we move through the end of the age, that this creation is going to labor more frequently and more intensely with more earthquakes, more tsunamis, more floods, more fires, more earthquakes. And when the great tribulation comes, it's going to burst wide open into full-blown labor. But it's only temporary, this labor. Someday God is going to give birth, the Revelation teaches, to a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. 
And so the first principle in this analogy that he wants us to understand is that our suffering is only temporary. But there's a second principle that God's people can learn from studying the suffering of the creation, and that is that this suffering is a consequence of the fall of man. Look now, if you will, at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now, what does it mean when it says the creation was subjected to futility? He's reminding us that the created world, or what many people refer to as nature, has been cursed. When Paul speaks of the creation, he's talking about the stars and the rivers and the planets and He's talking about hurricanes and earthquakes and floods and all the things that happen every single day on this planet. He's talking about the animal world as well. I was recently watching a program on PBS and this puma came up on this antelope and just took him down without a twinge of regret. There's a cruelty in the animal world that God did not originally create. All of nature is in this state. And if you'll notice here in verse 20, it's not because of a choice that it made. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, of God, who subjected it. Again, he's, he's personifying creation. And he's telling us that the state that the creation is in is not something that they asked for. It didn't happen willingly. Adam's sin drug all of the creation in with it. It was not that the birds and the bees and the trees sinned. It was that Adam sinned. And Adam's guilt and our guilt with Adam, because we sinned in and with him, Romans 5.12 said, brought common suffering to all men because the creation fell. Now listen to these words from Genesis 1. You might want to turn there. Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Genesis, the very first word in the Bible is the Hebrew word barashit. It means in the beginning. Uh, in our English Bibles, we don't use uh, the title that's in the Jewish Bible. They call it barashit. Uh, we use a Greek name, genosius. It means beginnings. And even so, what a great name. Because this is the book of beginnings. And in Genesis 1, he gives us really a theology on the ecology that many Christians don't have today. In Genesis 1, God said he created the sea, great sea monsters and every living creature, in verse 21, that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. When God made man, God made man to be in total dominion over the creation. And man had that total dominion before sin entered into the world. Look at verse 29. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. Everything was edible. No poisonous mushrooms, no rotten fruit. It was really paradise on earth. And even the animal world was in harmony with man. In verse 30, God says, And every beast of the earth, and every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. They didn't eat each other. The whole universe was vegetarian. And I'm not advocating that today, all right? So don't send me a letter. In fact, I would advocate for you to have a good steak because the Bible teaches it, that you need it in this fallen world. Just don't eat too much of it. Look at uh, uh, <laughs> verse uh, 20. It says the man of chapter 2, the man gave names to all the cattle 
and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. Even the animals and the birds had no fear of Adam. It was a perfect environment on a scale of one to 10. It was a 20. And in fact, ever before the great flood, the Bible teaches it never rained. That would be refreshing in these last few weeks, wouldn't it? It says in 2.6, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. God had a built-in sprinkler system, an inner earth reservoir by which he watered the world. So the entire world, the vegetable kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, was all subservient to Adam. But when sin entered into the world, death came with it and the creation fell. And so notice, if you will, in Genesis 3 and in verse 14, the animal world now has a curse on it. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. This verse implies that not only was the serpent cursed, but all of creation, all of the animal world was cursed because he says the serpent Satan is cursed more than any, every beast of the field. What some would call the survival of the fittest, God would call the fall of man. That's why there's this lack of harmony in the world today and also in the mineral world. Look at Genesis 3 and verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat from it, curses the ground because of you. That's why it takes so much work and fertilizer to make things grow. I planted a tree recently. Within a month, it's all brown, dead as can be. Uh, you know, you can work hard, you can sweat at it, but there's a problem. That's why we have barren deserts and bad soils and curses the ground because of you. The vegetable and the plant world is cursed. That's why we have roses with thorns in them. And that's why it's easier for me to grow weeds than it is to grow vegetables. Look at verse 18, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. Now go back to Romans 8, because this is precisely what the Apostle Paul is teaching us here in Romans 8 and in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. The creation was subjected to futility, not because God hated man, but because God loved man. The worst thing that God could have done was to left us in a Garden of Eden kind of environment. We would never have known with the same intensity that there's a problem between us and God. And so the creation leaves us daily reminders that we are in big trouble. Sufferings, thorns and thistles, aches and pains, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunami, cancer, heart attacks, all of it is putting man on notice that there is something that is wrong. And so this is an expression of the grace of God signaling us that we need to see a solution. So don't view suffering as your enemy, see it as your friend. If you stepped on a nail and you didn't know it, then you might get tetanus and die before you could do anything about it. And so God puts us on notice. Now, there's a third analogy or a lesson that he gives us from the creation moaning and groaning and suffering. If you will notice the last two words of verse 20, they feed into verse 21. He says here, in hope, 
And hope, of course, as we have studied it in Romans and in the rest of the New Testament, does not speak of, like in English, of something that is uncertain, like I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon, but of something that is sure and definite. And I think you could say, I hope it rains this afternoon because it is going to. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's a promise. The world that you see now is not what it is going to be. Register that in your thinking this morning. And so he says in verse 22, if you will notice, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. Again, there are three groans in this chapter that you cannot miss. There's the groan of the creation, there's the groan within ourselves, and as we will see next time, there is the Spirit who groans. So God pictures the whole creation as moaning and groaning, as sighing, because it is pressed down in great distress because of sin. And you can try to fix it, and there are a lot of people who are spending their lives trying to fix the creation, and that's like decorating a sinking ship, it's a waste of the time. I'm not telling you that you should abuse the creation. We are stewards over it. But understand, this creation is not going to get better. It is going to get much worse than you can ever imagine. Just read the Revelation in Matthew 24 for the fine details. But someday when Jesus comes back, the labor pains will be over. And he's going to fix it. Now, that brings us to the final point, And that's the answer to suffering. God never gives us information for information's sake. He doesn't give you information to make you a smarter sinner. He gives you truth to make you more like Jesus Christ. And God's interested in what we believe because he wants it to influence our behavior. Look now at verse 23. And not only this, meaning not only the creation, not only this, but also we ourselves, meaning we believers too, we Christians too, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So he compares the current work of the Holy Spirit to an Old Testament feast called first fruits. And it was something that every farmer knew something about. When a farmer plants his crop, the first fruits are the first things to come. Those early crops, and they are a picture of what will come some weeks later of the harvest that is going to follow. And so he compares God, the Holy Spirit, who, as Romans 8 9 teaches, lives inside of every believer, to the first fruits of this great harvest that is still out in front. He's called a pledge. He's called an earnest. He's called a down payment. One paraphrase translation says he's like an engagement ring. And like an engagement ring, that is the promise of a marriage. You, you never meet a woman who says, well, I've always wanted an engagement ring. You know, I, I always wanted one of those big diamonds. I don't care whether the guy marries me or not. All I want is the ring. No, 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 no woman reasons like that. The ring is a promise of the future, of a husband of a family, of a home, of companionship, of fellowship, and much, much more. At least that's the way God intended it. Now, maybe in five years' time, she wished she only had the ring. I understand that. But understand the ring is a future promise. It's a promise of the future. And he's saying, listen, the Holy Spirit has been given to us who in prayer causes us to call God our Father, our Daddy, 
Abba, Father. He is just the first fruit of what is yet to come, the redemption of our body when Jesus comes back. See, we've only been partially saved, the Bible teaches in the strictest sense, because God will not complete our salvation until the return of Christ. Fanny Crosby, that blind, blind hymn writer, wrote, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That, that's what you write when you're blind. But there's no blindness in heaven. No limbs that need to be severed. No hearts that need to be operated on. And so in verse 24, he describes what our response should be. Notice, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? Now, this is an important verse, so think your way through it. Remember, hope in the Bible always speaks of something that is future. What makes hope hope is it's still out there in the future. So he says, for in hope we have been saved. You see, when God saved us, God saved us in hope. In hope or in guarantee of what? In hope of the redemption of our bodies that he just mentioned in the previous verse. The future glory that Jesus will bring when he comes back. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? If we had it right now, we wouldn't have to long and look and wait for it. It's something that is still out there in the future, something that we long for. Now, the problem with a lot of us is we have a distorted view of hope, and it affects our perspective on suffering. We're only focusing on the suffering and not on the future hope, and we think we're going to be in labor forever. We think the suffering will never let up and never give way. And Paul wants to remind us, listen, you haven't seen anything yet. Some years ago, I took a couple of weeks vacation in the first week. We put hardwood floors in my first floor. And boy, I bit off more than I could chew. But I did it with my sons. And man, we worked so hard. And I kept reminding those guys, I said, now next week, we'll be sipping iced tea somewhere. And we'll be relaxing. And we'll be on vacation. And it just put some stale into their spine. That's what Paul is saying. You're not going to be in labor forever. Someday Jesus is going to be back, come back and the curse is going to be lifted. Let me share with you what is going to happen to the animal kingdom first. Isaiah the prophet wrote, speaking of the second return of the Messiah and the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling and the little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze, their young ox will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, not each other, but getting grass like before the fall. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." Now, this has never come to pass, not literally, but just as literally, God fulfilled every single promise for the first coming. He will literally fulfill every single promise for the second coming. A day is coming when the suffering of this world will be no more. At Jesus' second coming, this world as we know it will be completely transformed, and we who are in Christ will be able to enjoy it as we never have before. We're looking at suffering and the life of Christians, part of our study of Romans chapter 8. If you'd like to hear this or any of the messages from our series in Romans, 
visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, or use the Search the Scriptures app, available through the iTunes and Google Play Store. You can also request a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478. Tomorrow we conclude our look at suffering in the life of a Christian. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.